You know, as we're looking at God's Word, I know last week was kind of a, uh, it was a challenging message, wasn't it? Um, I know that idea of pride and the way that it can disrupt and the pain that it brings was hard. And as we're looking this morning in Acts, you can go ahead and open your Bible up to Acts chapter 5 this morning. We're picking up where we left off last week. And uh, again, just like I said beforehand, we're going to be going through Acts 5 today. Then we're going to take a break for a few weeks from the book of Acts, and we'll pick back up after, our, um, after the Easter celebrations and things. So we'll pick back up, I guess, on April the 12th is when we'll be back to normal things. Uh, I think, is it the 12th? I don't remember. Yeah, whatever day that is, something like that. Yeah, it's been that kind of week. As we're looking at this passage this morning, I've already mentioned to you multiple times throughout the service, we're going to be talking about God's power on display. Now, as men especially, you know, I think about Tim the Toolman Taylor, right? You know, what was Tim the Toolman's Taylor's catchphrase? It was, oh, wow, okay, all right. Some of you guys did not watch, how many of you watched Home Improvement back in the day and it came on reruns there for a little bit, they've taken it back off of Hulu, can't watch anymore. His catchphrase was, more power, right? He always wanted to soup everything up. And so, you know, if it was a lawnmower, it needed, you know, an engine that could run a tractor instead of a, just a little 42-inch lawnmower. Whatever it was, he was always attracted to more power. We're attracted to power lifters, right? You know, guys that can pick up a ton of weight and set it back down. Men like Thor Bjornsson, who I think has the world record on the deadlift right now, picking up over a thousand pounds at one time and setting it back down. Um, it's kind of cr- crazy to watch. If you've ever seen anybody do that, it, it's just an absurd amount of weight. There's no reason your body should ever do this, and it's just bad. But we, we see power lifters. We're attracted to powerful people. That's why we care too much about what celebrities say is because they have some level of prestige, you know, and that's why we follow politics and all. There's a part of us that is drawn to power. And so what I'm hoping and praying that as we look through several stories this morning that are kind of connected and just some short little vignettes that we find here in the book of Acts, we're going to see God's power on display. So no matter what power you're typically attracted to, what, what really gets you going, this morning what I want you to see is the power of God and the way that he can display it. Now there's one crucial truth that you need to understand as we look at the power of God through the remainder of Acts chapter 5. We're going to see him working in multiple different situations, doing miraculous things. But notice this with me. Everything that God does, every time he displays his power in and through his people, it is always for his glory. Okay? Now, you need to seal and settle this fact. God loves you more than you could ever imagine. God's care and his compassion and his concern for you is far above anything that you could wrap your head around. It blows your mind. I'm reading through a book right now. I'm not ready to recommend it to everybody yet because I don't know for sure where I feel on it. But the author has been challenging us to look at the tenderness of Christ. And I've had myself, I've been struggling as I've read it because the way he presents it presents God as so much better than I can imagine that, that it's hard for me, even as a pastor, that it just, it boggles my mind that God would be that good and that kind and that gracious and that loving towards us. And I think he's right. But here's the thing that you also need to remember with that. Life is not about you, okay? 
In our family, we've tried to, to make the statement of Jesus first, others next is the way that we talk about things when the kids are, you know, arm wrestling each other for who gets to sit where on the couch or, you know, those kind of things. But we're trying to remind them that Jesus is first and others next. So as we look at God's power on display, sometimes you'll hear preachers as they're talking about the power of God, they'll point to the fact that God wants to do these wonderful things in your life and that God can do these powerful things, and he can. But remember that whatever God does, he does not only for your good, but ultimately for his glory. Because the best thing that you and I can do is recognize how good God is and help others to see it. Okay? So as we look at God's power on display this morning, we're going to see it in at least three different ways. And what I'm going to do is we're going to just kind of walk through these passages a little bit at a time instead of like reading it ahead of time and and then breaking it back down. We're going to just walk through it as we go, okay? The first thing that we're going to see, starting here in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, is that God has the power and demonstrates his power to to draw people to himself. In the early days of the church, God was manifesting his power in some awe-inspiring ways. Some of it will look like we would expect it to. Some of it won't. So as we're looking at this, we're not going to put God in a box. But the first thing that we're going to see is that God has the power to draw people to himself. So read here with me, Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the town surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is pretty incredible. This is right after we saw Ananias and Sapphira's death. This is the very next statement that Luke makes about what was going on in the life of the church. So right after they weather this internal storm of the pride that Ananias and Sapphira had that led to their death, that then would have disrupted the church and great fear fell on everybody, we see that they get right back to it. They're continuing to go to the temple, which is where Solomon's colonnade was. It was kind of a part of the temple. They're going and they're ministering. They're seeing the power of God on display. I was talking with the praise team this morning. Here's the challenge that I have sometimes. You know, I've been a Christian, I believe, for about 28 years now, if I do the math right. And that's long enough that I have grown, at times, familiar with reading these statements. You know, yep, many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. They brought people out. Peter's shadow fell on them, and they got healed. Wait, back that up a second. Think about what's going on here. Remember that they didn't have the medical system that we have today. And, and you've got people who are dealing with disease. By the way, if you notice, some people say, well, you know, all this unclean spirit stuff, well, that's just, they, they didn't understand. It was their superstitious understanding of disease. No, they make the distinction. There's diseased people, and there are those who are tormented by unclean spirits. That, that's not one and the same in their minds. They knew that, that some things were physical and some things were spiritual. We might do well to recognize that, by the way. As we're looking at this, though, people brought sick people out into the street. And as Peter would walk by, as his shadow fell on them, because they put faith and trust in God and God alone, not in Peter, it wasn't because they looked at Peter as some kind of magical guy. As he walked by, they put their faith and trust in Christ, and he healed them. Like, gone. We're we're talking paralyzed people. We're, We're talking those who had skin conditions that were incurable that would have ultimately led to their death. We're we're talking about people who had dealt with demon possession who weren't in control of their own emotions, their own bodies, or anything else because the demons had taken such hold. 
And as the apostles are walking by, God demonstrates his power in such great ways that they get irreversibly healed from that. Verifiably. I was at a service one time where people claimed that somebody got healed. I said, what they get healed of? They said, cancer. How do you know? Uh, we'll find out later. Never knew because it was somewhere that never went back. Maybe God did. But in that moment, here what we see is God's putting his power on display. Now, let's, let's talk about this idea. Verse 13, um, as the believers were continuing to meet in the temple, it said that uh, the great signs were being done through the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. The idea was they were starting to notice that when the apostles would teach and preach, they had this tendency to get thrown in prison. And so they were a little bit worried about the, the authorities and what might happen to them if they openly associated. So although the believers were gathering together with the apostles, those who were unbelievers weren't really willing to join in because they didn't want to be associated with us, those guys lest they get cast out too. But it's interesting that even in the middle of that, they still have favor with the people. They're, they're still seeing that, that God's working through the apostles and, and people are speaking well of them. Then verse 14, it says that believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. Now, it's interesting as you look at this because they're not willing to associate with them yet, but at the same time, God is still using his word and the preaching of it and the miracles he was doing is still drawing people to himself. People are still getting saved. By the way, notice the progression here. If you remember it, when everything opened, all of the disciples and apostles and everybody that were together could fit in one room, right? In Acts 2, we find pretty much everybody that was following Jesus in one room. Then by the end of Acts chapter 2, we've got 3,000 who've been saved. Then when we got into chapter 4 at the beginning, you said that there were 5,000 men, not counting the women and children who've been saved. Now we're not even looking at numbers. We're just saying there are multitudes of people getting saved. Here's what's neat about this, by the way. Some of you guys are cynical enough like me that you probably look at this and say, yeah, right. I mean, I mean... I've seen those services where the you know, preacher gets real fired up and real emotional and it seems like everybody comes down to get saved, you know, and then six months, none of the, those people are following Jesus. This is, this is God's word saying that these people are believing. This is God's word saying that people were getting saved by the multitudes. Can you imagine seeing the power of God work so mightily that thousands of people were genuinely coming to a saving relationship with Jesus as their Savior and Lord? How incredible would that be? See, as we see God's power on display, it happened because the believers' lives were constantly demonstrating the power of God. His power was so evident that people were genuinely drawn to him. Look again at verse 15 and 16. They would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the town surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. God was healing people left and right through the work of the apostles. Now, let's pause real quick. We believe 100% without hesitation or equivocation that God is still able to heal, okay? My statement earlier about God healing of cancer, you know, he can do it. He could do it in a service if God wants to. However, there is nothing in Scripture that indicates that me or anybody else will have the same authority that God gave Peter to where my shadow falling on people would heal people, okay? So regardless of what that pastor on TV tells you about, you know, I put my hand on this cloth and I prayed over it and I'm gonna send it out to you and now, you know, you're gonna get healed. There's nothing biblical about that because we see it by example. We never see it taught that that's what we're supposed to do. 
There's a difference between prescription and description. This is important. Uh, Real quick pause, all right? Um, When you're reading through the Bible, you need to understand some passages are descriptive, saying what happened, and then the other passages are prescriptive, where God says, do this, don't do that, okay? So this is a passage that is descriptive of what's going on. God was so mightily working through Peter in the early days of what was going on here that as he was doing that, he was doing that to validate the message that the apostles were preaching. We don't have to have that same validation because we have it recorded in the word of God. So this is what we believe. This is what we teach. This is what we go back to. This is validated in and of itself through the test of history and through time. So we don't have the mighty miracles in the same way that the apostles did in those days. So this is describing how God was working in those days, not prescribing a way that we're supposed to do things. Do you see the difference? Make the nodding sound? Okay. So as we're looking at this, notice, though, that the whole point of what God was doing here was drawing people to himself. It wasn't just about the healing. Yes, physical healing does push back against the effects of sin, and it does show that God is ultimately in charge over all of creation. But it's also a picture of how God heals the heart. We, we see this parallel often in the Gospels. You see where Jesus does this. Like example, uh, Matthew chapter 9. Some men brought a paralyzed friend to Jesus. They wanted Jesus to heal him, and Jesus healed the man's primary need, which was to forgive his sin. Look here, Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, should be up on the screen. Just then, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. At, some of this, at this, some of the scribes said to him, He's blaspheming, because only God can forgive sins. Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, Get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So he got up and went home. The whole point of Jesus healing physically in this instance was, yes, to do good for this man, yes, to push back against the effects of sin and the curse and show God's power over all creation, but ultimately to prove that Jesus had the power to forgive sins. So as Peter and the other apostles are going through and they're doing these mighty miracles, they're seeing these signs and wonders taking place, they're doing so so that God's power would be displayed so that people would understand that he is the only name under heaven by which we must be saved, like we saw back in Acts chapter 4, like we sang about this morning. The only name under which we can be saved is the name of Jesus. And they demonstrated that by saying, and this name, Jesus, pushes back against all of the effects of sin, even sickness, even death, even demonic possession. Okay? We clear on what God was doing here? Now, again, he said that the whole point of this physical healing was to demonstrate the more important reality that God can heal hearts. That's, again, what Isaiah points us to in Isaiah 53, verse 5, where he's describing the suffering that Jesus would endure. He said, he was pierced because of our rebellion, excuse me, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Look at the context of all of those things. Pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquity, punishment for our peace was on him. That's all talking about our spiritual condition. The fact that because you and I are sinners, because we have done things that we wanted to do and not what God told us to do, because of all of that, we're separated from God. So Jesus was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities, the things that we've done wrong. Punishment to gain our peace with God was laid on him. And then spiritually, we are healed by the wounds that he had. Okay? This is not primarily talking about physical healing. Look at the context. Context is king, no matter what you're looking at. By his wounds, we're healed. So as 
the apostles are seeing God work through them to bring physical healing. God's power is on display to draw people to himself. Multitudes of people were not just getting healed, they were believing in Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. So am I saying that we should reasonably expect the power of God to work through our church family to heal the sick? God can do it. I mean, don't, don't ever get me wrong. I don't ever want anything I to say to ever limit God. God can do whatever he wants. He is God. But I will say that in this stage of church life, ever since the apostles and now that we have the word of God, this is not the normative way that God works. This is not necessarily what we would expect. Keep in mind what we just said. One of the main purposes of the physical healing was to validate the apostles' teaching. So now that we've got the word of God and thousands of years of church history to, to validate that, God may not manifest his power in the same way. Can he? Absolutely. I know guys that he's done it with. I could uh, give you a friend of mine up in Winchester who was uh, getting ready to go out on disability his, with back pain from the state police, and some men in the church laid their hands on him and prayed, and as he prayed, he said it felt like somebody took his shoulders and just unwound him like a screw, and he's, the back pain cleared up, and he was able to continue serving with the state police. In fact, I think he still may be. He also went on to plant a church and is planting a second church now because God miraculously healed him. Now, now at the same time, He's got a bad knee. God didn't take care of that, you know? Physical healing is limited. God can do it. But ultimately, the point of God displaying his power in any way, shape, or form is to draw people to himself. That's what he was doing through the apostles. See, he's, we have to understand, this is something we talked about on Wednesday night, we, you can't just get saved without God drawing you to himself. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent, him, sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Okay? Now, how does God work in that way? Well, there's some mystery to this that we don't fully understand about what it looks like for God to draw. But at the same time, we know that the agents that he has used, the agents he's called to join him in seeing people saved, is us. So whether it's through healing or whether it's through a long obedience in the same direction or whether it's through whatever we face, as we see God's power demonstrated through us, he uses that to draw people to himself. He may not heal someone through you, but he can use the fact that you sat and listened to them as a way to draw somebody to himself. He may not raise the dead through you, but he can use you to encourage and lift someone up, pointing them to the one who was lifted up on a cross for them. As he works powerfully in your life, remember that you're called to be his ambassador to the world. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, Paul said, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So as we've been talking over these last several weeks about making sure that we're giving God honor and glory, that we're responding in God-honoring ways to things at work, things at home, things at school, things in the world around us, as we're responding in God-honoring ways, we're his ambassadors. And as we see God's power demonstrated through us to give us the ability to love people who are unlovable, to be able to invest in lives even when it hurts, to be able to do those things, we'll see God demonstrate his power so that he can draw people to himself. That's what the early church was seeing as the apostles did this. It's not about you. They weren't doing this for notoriety or fame. We already saw that that'll kill you, which is what Acts chapter 5 says earlier with Ananias and Sapphira. Instead, they were following God's leader, leading and they were allowing his spirit to powerfully draw people to himself through them. So my question is, are you willing to do the same? Remember the song, This Little Light of Mine, right? I'm gonna let it shine. Remember the second verse? Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm gonna let it shine. See, are you willing to give God honor and glory and 
allow his power to be displayed through you, even when it means that you're going to have awkward conversations, even when it's going to be costly because you're going to have to invest in somebody who you think is weird, even when it's going to call you outside of your comfort zone to do things that don't make sense, to go beyond what you're ready to do, are, are you willing to let God's power flow you through you so that you can see him at work and demonstrate that to other people so that he can draw them to himself? I've been thinking about something recently. Around here, we say that our goal is we would learn to love God and others in our family, church, community, world. I think we need to add one more phrase to the end of this and to lead others to do the same. Our goal is that we would love God and others and lead others to do the same. Because the reality is that's what God's called us to do. He's called us to be followers of his, to be disciples. And he's also called us to be disciple-making disciples. So we need to learn that our goal is to love God and to love others. And a part of that is leading others to do the same. That means leaving in such a way that God's power is on display through us so it'll draw people to himself. All right, now that's the first way that we see God's power on display here. That's not the only way, though, that God's power was manifested in this chapter. We second thing, that God has the power to deliver believers from trouble. Now, this part is probably the most exciting part of the passage, but it's not the end of the story, unfortunately. The high priest gets mad at the apostles because, once again, they're doing what they weren't supposed to do. If you remember back in chapter 4, they arrested him and said, don't go out and preach about Jesus. And what did they do? They went out and preached about Jesus, right? They're publicly preaching Jesus. It's not making them happy. So pick up in verse 17 and 18 with me. Then the high priest rose up. He and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. By the way, isn't it great that Luke gives us the little behind the scenes? It's not that they were just mad that they were disobeying them. They were jealous because everybody was excited about the apostles. God was working in a big way through them. So that jealousy then led them, verse 18, so they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Well, that seems familiar. This is the second time we've been through this now. Verse 19. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out and said, go stand in the temple, tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Isn't that awesome? I mean, can you even imagine this? You're locked up in jail in the middle of the night and all of a sudden God sends an angel and the doors spring open. He leads you out. Nobody's a little wiser for what's going on. That's my favorite thing. We're gonna see in a little bit. Nobody knew that they had gotten out of prison. It's the best moment ever. I love the way that God does this. And he demonstrates that he can do this. God has the ability to deliver believers from trouble. There's no question. We, we've seen it. Here, they're, they're sitting there. They're in prison. They've been doing what God called them to do. They're in an impossible situation. And God works in an impossible way to bring them out of it. Isn't that awesome that God can do that? That'd be a great place for an amen if you were that kind of people. All right, yeah. Now, it's interesting. Look at the command again in verse 20. The angel brought them out and said, go stand in the temple, tell the people about this life. Why did God deliver them from the trouble of being in prison? So they could get out and preach. Okay? Now, as you guys are looking at the trouble that you're in, that nobody knows the trouble you've seen, right? As nobody knows your sorrow... Jesus does, for one. But as he delivers you from it, he does so so that you'll give him the praise and the honor and the glory. See, that's the part that we love. 
God does this miracle and they get out. So what do they do? Verse 21 tells us they went right back to preaching. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. I mean, they didn't even like sleep on it, right? They got out in the middle of the night, maybe got an hour's rest. And the next morning, as soon as the the sun comes up, they are back in the temple and preaching. Uh, Keep reading because this is where it gets fun. When the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites. They sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the servants got there, they didn't find him in the jail. So they returned and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing in front of the doors. But when we opened, we found no one inside. Can you imagine how that conversation went? 24, as the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. Verse 25, someone came and reported to them, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. (laughs) Isn't this great? I mean, do you not see the irony here? Like, can you imagine, you know, Gordon, you work in a jail. Can you imagine how it would be if the next morning when they came to to take a a prisoner to a hearing or something like that, you're like, yep, been here all night long, nothing happened. You open the door and there's nobody in there. As they're sitting there thinking, well, there's nobody here. They're like, "Uh, hey guys, didn't y'all arrest those dudes? Because they're down there teaching again. I love the way that God works. God worked powerfully to deliver these believers from trouble. And listen, guys, God can do the same for you, okay? God can deliver you from anything that you face. He is still the same God he's always been. He's still able to do those things. This reminded me of one of my favorite Old Testament stories, the the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? You guys remember these three guys? They were Daniel's friends, and, and they had this situation where they had King Nebuchadnezzar who told everybody that they needed to bow down in front of this idol and this statue that he had made, and they refused to do it because they wouldn't bow down to anyone but God. And so they sit there, they get arrested, and he says, you know what, since you guys weren't going to bow, I'm going to turn up the heat of this furnace seven times what it normally would be, and we're going to throw you guys in there. The heat was so bad, remember, it killed the guard who threw them in just from being that close to it. Before he does, he even taunted, King Nebuchadnezzar actually taunted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and said, who could deliver you from somebody as powerful as me? Man, you don't want to make those statements when you're standing and confronting God. Daniel 3 says this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. Now, you got to understand, Nebuchadnezzar is literally the king of the world at this point, right? Like, he can do whatever he wants. There is no due process. There's, he has all authority. He wants to do whatever he wants to do. He's already said he's going to kill you. And he says, who possibly could defy me? Look, we don't have to give you an answer. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he doesn't rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Man, what boldness to look in the face of a man who's about to order your death and say, you know what? We know God can deliver us. But if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow. Would to God that we would demonstrate that same boldness in these days. Now, in that instance, God did deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They threw them in the fiery furnace. They saw a fourth walking among them. He looked like a son of the gods. May very well have been the son of God in the furnace with them. 
And as they walked out, they didn't even smell like smoke. God has the power to deliver his people from trouble. Period. End. When he does so, though, it's for his name and his glory. I'm afraid sometimes when God delivers us from trouble, we give him a hat tip. Thank you, Jesus. And then we go about our life. And we forget that the God who loves us is the one who did that. The God who is King of kings, the God who is Lord of lords, he is over all of creation, and he deserves the worship of every being under the sun. He demonstrates his power to deliver us from troubles. God is more powerful than anything you face. He is strong enough that he can deliver you from anything. And the apostles saw that when they walked out of jail and God delivered them out of the high priest's hands. God can deliver you, and sometimes he will use his power to do so. It is true that it's an act of God's love, but at the same time, he didn't just deliver them for their comfort, as we'll see in a minute. He delivered them so that they could continue proclaiming how good he is. Now, that's going to become especially clear as we see what happens next. This is definitely one of those out of the frying pan and into the fire kind of moments. Yes, God delivered them from trouble by getting them out of prison. And then what happens next? Well, we see that he also has the power to sustain believers in trouble. Because see, the Sanhedrin found him. They brought him right back. Verse 26, the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. (laughs) They were scared. Verse 27, after they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, the high priest act. Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? By the way, it's interesting. He doesn't say a word about the fact that y'all got out of jail. (laughs) All he says is, didn't we tell you not to teach in this name? By the way, you also notice he doesn't use the name Jesus. It's suggested that it's already becoming uncouth to say the name Jesus in this circle. Look, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Which, by the way, if they were guilty of blood, remember that the Old Testament law under which they were still living was the law of lex talionis, the idea of eye for an eye. If you were guilty of blood, then your blood would be shed. So what he's saying is, you're trying to say that we're murderers. Peter has such a diplomatic response. Verse 29, Peter and the apostles replied, look, we must obey God rather than people. Now, if you remember, go back to Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. Peter and John were a little bit more diplomatic. They said, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. It was a little bit more polite there and say, you know, I, I, I don't know. You know, we've got to listen to God. But then flat out right here, verse 29, we must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. Not pulling punches at all. You murdered Jesus by having him hung on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God had given to those who obey him. Man, he goes on to tell them again what Jesus really is. He's not just some teacher that you wanted to get rid of. He is the king of kings. He is the one that God promised throughout the Old Testament to send to save his people. And you guys had him murdered. Verse 33 tells us that wasn't really well received. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. Guys, that's not hyperbole here. They wanted these men dead. 
There's an interesting interjection here by a, a teacher named Gamaliel. If you're familiar with Gamaliel, that you hear about him here, and you also would have heard about him. He's the one who taught the apostle Paul everything he knew about Judaism. He was the rabbi under which Paul studied. So he actually was this incredibly well-respected teacher, and he interjects here as the, the Sanhedrin is ready to go ahead and get these guys killed, kill all of them for the heresy that they've been promoting. Let's just get it over with and let's get it done with. Gamaliel stops them. And he gives some kind of interesting counsel. Um, he advises them to be careful. He reminds them that there are other people like, like you know, this dude named Judas who came along and, and kind of fizzled out and stuff like that. Then verse 38, he said, so in this present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For this plan will work, uh, for, excuse me, yeah, for this plan or this work is of human origin, it'll fail, okay? So if this is just people doing this, it'll fail. But if it is of God, you'll not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. They were persuaded by him. Now, on the surface, by the way, that sounds like good advice. It actually isn't. There are times when God does allow things that are not of him to flourish. We don't understand why. We don't understand why God doesn't just stop things. But he was right in that if this is of God, there's nothing that the Sanhedrin could do to stop it. And by opposing them, they were found fighting with God. So Gamaliel was kind of half right, but don't use this as a good standard. Just because something's popular, just because it's gone on for a long time, doesn't necessarily mean it's of God, okay? However, here's the response. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Wait a second. That word flog is used somewhere else in Scripture, you remember? That's what they did to Jesus right before they hung him on the cross. It's where they would have taken whips that possibly had bone and glass embedded in them, and they would have raked them across the apostles' back. This was not a slap on the wrist. Likely they were probably beaten with 39 lashes, 40 minus one. They had a law in, in their rabbinic stuff that said that you could only beat somebody with a whip 40 times because if you, if you went more than 40, it was excessive. So these guys were probably beaten 40 lashes minus one. You hear Paul talk about that. They, they would always minus one just in case they miscounted. <laughs> Gives you an idea. These men had been beaten for the cause of Christ. How did they react? Glad that's over. Whew. Man, I just want to go home. Peter was at least married. We don't know how, how many of the other apostles were. I just want to go home and see my wife. How did they respond? Verse 41. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. They went out from the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Think about it. These were the very men who had been with Jesus in the garden when he was arrested. Some of them saw the flogging from a distance. Some of them were there at the cross and saw Jesus' body broken and bleeding. They could smell the blood and the sweat. 
that they could see the anguish on Jesus' face as he hung on the cross, dying for what they would find out was our sins and theirs. They saw him. And on that day, it sure didn't seem like God's power was being displayed as the one that they had looked to and hoped in died on a cross. Three days later, these same men were the one who took off running to go look and saw that the tomb was empty and that the power of God had been displayed by raising that same Jesus from the dead. And now they have the privilege, the privilege of being beaten for the name of Christ. They counted it an honor to bear shame as Christians. Were they just messed up in the head? No. They knew the power of God in such a way that it led them to rejoice that they had experienced some of the same suffering and shame that their Lord had gone through. Guys, this is unheard of. I pinched my finger yesterday putting something together, and I whined about it all night long. It didn't even leave a mark. There's like a tiny little... These men were beaten within an inch of their life and they went out rejoicing. You know, Hebrews 11 talks about the great saints of the Old Testament and it says that they were men of whom the world was not worthy. These men were the same. Here's what we draw from this. How can you have that kind of reaction to trouble? How can you have that kind of reaction to pain? How can you have that kind of reaction to suffering? It's when you are fully understanding and resting in the power of God on display. See, the power of God was displayed there not by delivering them from it, but instead sustaining them in it. I wish that I could promise you as a pastor that if you just follow Jesus, life is gonna be nothing but peaches and cream and everything's gonna come up roses and it's gonna be perfect and wonderful, but that's just not how it works. The greatest men in church history were beaten within an inch of their life. In fact, of these apostles, we believe that tradition tells us 11 of the 12 died in in a martyr's death. They were put to death for their faith. They were killed for following Jesus, and the 12th died in exile. Why? Because they knew the power of God to change lives. They went out rejoicing. What happened? Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Every day. They kept teaching and proclaiming Jesus is the Messiah. I don't know what you're facing right now, guys. But remember this. I mentioned this verse earlier today. Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4. Talking about God, it says, He will not allow your foot to slip. Your protector will not slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. Now, we are not Israel. However, we have been drawn into a covenant relationship with this very same God. If he didn't get drowsy with Israel, he's not going to get drowsy with you. He has the power to sustain you in the trouble you're facing. That's why Paul could say confidently in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I am sure of this. I'm sure of this. 
that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So, what are you facing this morning? Like I said, I, I don't know a lot of what you guys are facing today. I know some. But I do know this. I know the God who's facing it with you. I know that he's a God who loved you enough to die in your place and be raised from the dead. He's powerful enough to even overcome death itself. So I know that he is a God who can display his power in and through your life. Maybe he's going to do it in some miraculous way. When he does, however he works through your life, he's doing it so he can draw people to himself through you. Maybe he's going to work in some powerful way to deliver you from trouble. That'd be great if he does. But at the very least, I know, I know, I know that he can give you the power to endure, the power to sustain you. Even when the whys go unanswered, even when things are painful and frustrating, may we be like the apostles and face whatever we face, rejoicing that we are counted worthy to suffer according to the name. Bow your heads with me, close your eyes. This morning, I want to give you a time to respond. I jokingly said nobody knows the trouble I've seen. It may be the case that nobody knows the troubles you're facing. Nobody knows the pain that you're going through. I can tell you this, Jesus does. Hebrews chapter 4 says that he's a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he's been tried in every way as we are and yet he never sinned. So my challenge for you this morning is would you ask for God's power to be displayed in and through you? As you look at the way your life is going right now, would you ask that God would work powerfully to help you to love well, to lead well, to speak well, to act well for his name and his glory so that he would draw people to himself? It's okay to pray and ask God to deliver you from the trouble you're facing. We know he's powerful enough to do that. So Pray that God will heal. Pray that God will forgive. God will restore. God will work in miraculous ways because he is a miracle-working God. With that prayer, acknowledge that he may answer that prayer by giving you the strength to endure, to sustain you, to show his power in and through you. If you're here this morning and you've not yet given your heart to Christ, if you've never followed him as your Savior and Lord, then I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. Because that's where all of this starts, is by coming and laying down your sin, all the things you've done wrong, all the the ways that you've done stuff for yourself instead of for God, laying that down and receiving his forgiveness. It's not something we can do. In fact, it's us crying out saying, God, there's nothing I can do to save myself. So if God is drawing you this morning, then surrender to him. If you need help doing that, I'd love to talk with you. 
So what I want us to do is I want us to continue with our head bowed and eyes closed for just a few minutes. And I'm going to come down here. Maybe you need to follow the Lord by, by getting saved. You've never done this. Or you realize that you thought you had, but you weren't serious about it the first time or didn't know what you were doing. I'd love to help you to find Christ today. Maybe that there's another way that you need to, to demonstrate your following of Christ, and that's by following him through baptism. To make a public profession of your faith in Christ and show everybody about the decision that you've made using the, the picture that God gave us. If you just want to make these steps an altar and pray or pray where you are, you feel free to do that. Just keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. I'm down front. You come down and talk to me if you need to. And then I'll close this in prayer in just a moment.